to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Julia. Here we are. Here we are. 2020. Brand new Which people. is really hard to believe because 1997 was just... It was three years, years ago. ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 2020 seems like this is the year that all those movies said that was the time of the darkness. <laughs> like this is the beginning of the aftertimes uh, in a lot of movies, I feel. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm a little afraid of what's yeah. going to happen. But you know what? 2020, we're going to have clear, clear vision. vision. <laughs> clear vision in, in 2020. That's what's up. Um, we got a lot of cool things coming up for you guys. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but we have um, a new logo. Isn't Thanks it for, so pretty? Oh my God, we were, it was one and done. Our good friend, Carly Schoenberg. Thank you so much, Carly. She designed that for us and it is exactly what we wanted it's without beautiful. us even knowing what we wanted. Yeah. So that was lovely. And um, stay tuned for um, an extra little segment in our podcast that you will be excited about, I think. Anyway. Um, so we had Dictator December. Right? Yes. We br- really, really brought it down. <laughs> End of the year. Yeah. We needed to you know, balance out all your joy and merriment. Exactly. It's the darkest time of the year. It's the darkest time in our history. I, I don't think we and were... And who knows if you were going to end up at a family celebration that was already going downhill that yeah. you could just bust out some, some facts. Some dictator facts. You know, like, hey, did you know that Pol Pot killed almost a million people? Like that... You know that. Yeah, I guess Uncle Mitch is bad, but at least he's at least he's not he's no Fidel Castro. Exactly. Yes, it provides perspective, and that's what we do here at Misinformation. And, and if anything, podcast. it really made us more grateful for. Oh, absolutely! I am very glad that me or members of my immediate family are not being actively murdered by uh, a despot. That's really the. Probably the minimum minimum we can hope for. <laughs> yeah. 2020. 2020. Not being murdered by a horrible disp- despot. Anyway, so I've decided we're just going to, I'm going to bring us up a little bit. Yeah. So back uh, to, back to the, to the huge. Yeah. Back to our fun, light, great content that you guys have come to <laughs> love and cherish. So <laughs> today, uh, my topic is going to be mystery woman, Agatha Christie. First of all, let me ask you this. Have you ever read any Agatha Christie novels? Yes. Okay. Dozens. Oh, wonderful. So you and I are going to be on the same page. Obviously. I have been loving Agatha Christie novels since I was mm, just about old enough to read. And Then There Are None is probably like my second favorite book of all time. It's one of the greatest books ever written, in fact. Um, but let's talk about yeah, Agatha please. first, and then we'll talk about her books. Great. Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller was born on September 15th, 1890, into a wealthy upper-middle-class family in Torquay, Devon. She was the youngest of three children born to Frederick Alva, or Fred Miller, who was a gentleman of substance, and his wife Clarissa Margaret, or Clara Miller. Um, she described her childhood as, quote, very happy. And she was surrounded by a series of strong and independent women from an early age. 
She lived primarily in Devon, but made occasional visits to the homes of her step-grandmother and great-aunt, Margaret Miller in Ealing, and maternal grandmother, Mary Bomer in Bayswater. On tr- via trains? Oh, yeah, lots of trains. She took trains like crazy. I mean, they all did, right? I mean, they still do, I feel. Um, the British, I mean. Uh, one year of her childhood was spent abroad with her family in the French Pyrenees, Paris, Dinard, and Guernsey. And Christy was raised in a household with various esoteric beliefs and, like her siblings, believed that her mother Clara was a psychic with the ability of second sight. Oh! Yeah. Naturally. Naturally. Um, so, uh, her father unfortunately died of heart problems in 1901 when she was 11, and Christy later claimed that her father's death marked the end of her childhood. So, a very sad moment. What year was she born? 1890. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so after completing her education, Christy returned to England and found her mother ailing, and they decided to spend time together in the warmer climate of Cairo, uh, which was then a regular tourist destination for wealthy British people. Um, she attended many social functions and particularly enjoyed watching polo. And then upon returning to Britain, she continued her social activities, writing and performing in amateur theatricals, which she did basically on and off for the rest of her life, which was kind of cool. Um, she also helped put on a play called The Blue Beard of Unhappiness with female friends, and her writing extended to both poetry and music. Some early works saw publication, but she decided against focusing on writing or music as future professions. She was just kind of having fun. Um, and she wrote her first short story, The House of Beauty, which is an early version of her later published story, which was called The House of Dreams. Um, she was recovering in bed from an undisclosed illness when she wrote this. Uh, this was about 6,000 words on the topic of, quote, madness and dreams, a subject of fascination for her. Um, one of her biographers has commented that despite, quote, infelicities of style, the story was nevertheless compelling. So basically, it wasn't great, but it was compelling? Question mark? Sure. You got something there, kid. Yeah. <clears throat> Buck up. Other stories followed, most of them illustrating her interest in spiritualism and the paranormal, which is something that she would continue to kind of like go back to, mm-hmm. not so much in her mystery books, but definitely in her romance novels, okay. which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, these stories included The Call of Wings and The Little Lonely God. Those were two of her more famous ones. Magazines rejected all her early submissions, um, all of which were n- made under pseudonyms, including Mac Miller, Nathaniel Miller, and Sidney West. Although some submissions were revised and published later, often with new titles. Okay. So she was kind of, now she's like starting to kind of play around with writing short stories and just kind of like tossing off to magazines like, oh, we'll see if this gets published kind of thing. So Christy then set her first novel, which was called Snow Upon the Desert in Cairo and drew from her recent experiences in that city, writing under the pseudonym Monosyllaba. (laughs) Yeah. Um, She was disappointed when the various publishers she contacted all declined meanwhile her social activities expanded like she seemed like a fun lady like she Mm -hmm. liked to go to dances she had a lot of friends um she entered into short-lived relationships with four separate men and an engagement with another so she was getting around girl could get it yeah she could get it um she then met archibald christie at a dance Archie was born in India, the son of a barrister in the Indian Civil Service, and he was an army officer who was seconded to the Royal Flying Corps in April 1913. The couple quickly fell in love. Upon learning that he would be stationed in Farnborough, Archie proposed marriage and Agatha accepted. By the way, I looked up Archie Christie. What a stone-cold fox. Like, he was (laughs) gorgeous. Like, not even, like... Like old timey handsome, where you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, what a smart mustache and a a strong chin. Like, no, this guy was sex like he was hot anyway so get it Agatha Christie so 
Um, she had long been a, def- a fan of detective novels, having enjoyed Wilkie Collins's The Woman in White and the Moonstone, mm-hmm. as well as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's early Sherlock Holmes stories. And so she wrote her own detective novel um, by her sister's um, encouragement. Okay. She kind of challenged her to write a detective novel. So the the result of that was called The Mysterious Affair at Styles. That was her first novel. Um, this features Hercule Poirot, a former Hercule Poirot. You gotta say his name like that. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I don't know why. I'm I feel sorry. like I heard it on a podcast or something <laughs> one time. It was like Hercule Poirot. Hercule Poirot. Hercule uh, <laughs> Poirot, a former Belgian police officer noted for his twirly, large, magnificent mustaches and an egg-shaped head. Uh, she began working on The Mysterious Affair at Styles in 1916, writing much of it on Dartmoor. And her original manuscript was rejected by such publishing companies as Hodder and Stroughton and Methuen. Famous British Famous publishing, publishing houses. Um, after keeping the submission for several months, John Lane at the Bodley Head offered to accept it, provided that Christie changed the ending. Ooh, okay. She did so and signed a contract, which she later felt was exploitative, mm. uh, but it was finally published in 1920. So her first novel, which featured Hercule Poirot, Hercule Poirot. <laughs> was published in 1920. Agatha Christie, meanwhile, settled into married life, giving birth to her only child, Rosalind Margaret Clarissa Christie, in August 1919 at Ashfield. Archie left the Air Force at the end of the war and started working in the city financial sector at a relatively low salary, though they still employed a maid. So they weren't like destitute. Um, Her second novel, The Secret Adversary, came out in 1922, which featured a new detective couple called Tommy and Tuppence, which we'll talk about later. This was again published by the Bodley Head, and it earned her 50 pounds. Mm, Yeah, nice. A third novel again featured Poirot. Poirot! Uh, called Murder on the Links, which came out in 1923, as did short stories commissioned by Bruce Ingram, who was the editor of the Sketch magazine. So she's picking up steam. She's picking up steam. She's she's starting to write like longer novels. She's still writing short stories. She's, you know, getting some stuff out there. So in 1922, the Christies together joined an around-the-world promotional tour for the British Empire Exhibition, led by Major Ernest Belcher. Leaving their daughter with Agatha's mother and sister, in 10 months, they traveled to South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, and Canada. They learned to surf prone in South Africa. (laughs) And then in Waikiki, they were among the first British people to surf standing up. So Agatha Christie is hanging 10 in Waikiki in 1922, writing novels, married to a hot guy, has a beautiful baby. She's living Living the best life. Living the best life. Living her best life. So... Following their return to England, Archie resumed work in the city while Christie continued to work hard at her writing. After a series of apartments in London, they moved to the country, eventually purchasing a house in Sunningdale, Berkshire, which they renamed Styles after the mansion in Christie's first detective novel. Unfortunately, Christie's mother died in April 1926, and they had been exceptionally close, and the loss sent Christie into a deep depression. Did her mother see it coming? <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> I guess not. That's a shame. Um, So now let's talk about the disappearance. I love this. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to set the scene. In August 1926, Archie asked Christie for a divorce. He had fallen in love with Nancy Neal, who had been a friend of Major Belcher's. Also, they were in like um, uh, a community group, basically, Uh like a wealthy person community group. And it was like all these wives and, and like friends of friends. And... Agatha and Nancy Neal were in the same, like they were mm-hmm. on the board for this and that they knew each other. Like they were friends, which is insane. So on December 3rd, 1926, the pair 
uh, fought after Archie announced his plan to spend the weekend with friends unaccompanied by his wife. He was like, I'm leaving. So late that evening, Agatha disappeared from her home. Mm -hmm. Her car, which was a Morris Cowley, was found at Newland's Corner perched above a chalk quarry with an expired driving license and her clothes. The disappearance caused a public outcry. Of course. The home secretary, William Joyson Hicks, William Joyson Hicks, uh, he pressured police and a newspaper offered a hundred pound reward. Over a thousand police officers, 15,000 volunteers and several airplanes scoured the rural landscape. Wow. They were like, save Agatha. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle gave a spirit medium one of Christie's gloves to find her because he was super into spiritualism. Super too. into it. Yeah. Until he got, you know taken by one too many people and then he set out his like he spent the rest of his life trying to disprove those people but anyway not a story about him christie's disappearance was featured on the front page of the new york times <laughs> despite the extensive manhunt she was not found for 10 days and finally on december 14th 1926 she was found at the swan hydropathic hotel in harrogate yorkshire registered as a mrs tressa neal which was the same surname as her husband's lover. Oh, from I didn't yeah, realize that from Cape Town, South Africa. South so, Africa. Yeah, South Africa. The next day, Christy left for her sister's residence, where she was sequestered. "Quote in guarded hall, gates locked, telephone cut off, and callers turned away." Christy's autobiography makes no reference to the disappearance. She didn't even mm-hmm. write about it. Two doctors diagnosed her as suffering from, quote, an unquestionable, genuine loss of memory, yet opinions remain divided over the reason for her disappearance. Some, including authorized biographer Janet Morgan, believe that she disappeared during a fugue state. In contrast, Jared Cade, who is another biographer of hers, research led him to conclude that Christie deliberately planned the event to embarrass her husband, but did not anticipate the public melodrama that resulted. That's the theory that I am most into. Into, yeah. Yeah. Because, okay, like... Just just like literature and film overall. Yeah. We've been led to believe, much like that the quicksand is is more of a danger yeah. than than we need than we initially than we thought. realize mm-hmm. that um amnesia it just you happens could, all the time. You all you just all you have to have is just like a bad a, shock. A knock on the head. Yep, and suddenly you cannot remember your entire life. Or your own name. Which is that's impossible. Yeah. So this and also back then. I mean, this this time period is just coming out of this idea that women are so delicate mentally mm-hmm. that, you know, anything could send them over the edge yeah, and they exactly. could just completely lose their minds, which is obviously not true. But she was probably more like, you're like, you, you are a bitch. Yeah. I'm going to the spa. I'm going to the spa and I'm going, I'm going to register under your lover's name. How do you like that? And you know what? I'm not going to call anybody or tell anyone where I'm going and I'm going to forge a disappearance. Spa'd. I'm going to get so spawed. Like, she writes detective novels. Of course she's going to know how to cover her tracks. Come on. Another biographer, Laura Thompson, provides the alternative view that Christy disappeared during a nervous breakdown, conscious of her actions but not in an emotional control of herself, which, mm, whatever. Public reaction at the time, however, was largely negative, supposing a publicity stunt or an attempt to frame her husband for murder. <laughs> so people were not like, when they found her, yeah. they were not super sympathetic. Yeah. So... Because she wasn't like wandering around the woods. Yeah, like bloodied and yeah. bruised. Like, oh no, I was kidnapped, you know. She was at a spa. Yeah, she was at a spa. So because of this, in January 1927, Christy, looking very pale, sailed with her daughter and secretary to Las Palmas in the Canary Islands to complete her convalescence. And she returned three months later. Uh, Christy petitioned for divorce and was granted that uh, in October 1928. And Archie married Nancy Neal a week later. 
Christie retained custody of their daughter, Rosalind, and the Christie surname for her writing. And during their marriage, she published six novels, a collection of short stories, and a number of short stories in magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, some years later, reflecting on the whole period, Christie said, quote, So after illness came sorrow, despair, and heartbreak. There is no need to dwell on it. That was all she said. Moving on. Moving, Moving on. on. So... In autumn 1928, Christie left England and took the Orient Express to Istanbul. She subsequently went on to Baghdad. In Iraq, she became friends with an archaeologist, Leonard Woolley, and his wife, who invited her to return to their dig in February of 1930. On that second trip, she met a young archaeologist, 13 years her junior, named Max Malawan. Looked him up. Also not, I wouldn't kick Max Malawan out of bed, you know what I'm saying? He had a smart little mustache. And a sharp jawline? Yes, ma'am. So, in a 1977 interview, Malawan recounted his first meeting with Christie when he took her and a group of tourists on a tour of his expedition site in Iraq. Christie and Malawan married in September of 1930. So this was like, quick, quick, quick. Their marriage was happy and lasted until Christie's death. Well, good. Uh, Lovely. So she was very happy with him. So during the Second World War, Christie worked in the pharmacy at University College Hospital in London, where she acquired a knowledge of poisons that she put to good use in her post-war crime novels. I love it. Yeah. Uh, for example, the use of thallium as a poison was suggested to her by UCH chief pharmacist Harold Davis, later appointed the chief pharmacist of the UK Ministry of Health. And in The Pale Horse, published in 1961, she employed it to dispatch a series of victims, the first clue to the murder method coming from the victim's loss of hair. So accurate was her description of thallium poisoning that on at least one occasion it helped solve a case that was baffling doctors. Wow. Isn't that cool? Also, a weird thing, around 1941 or 1942, British intelligence agency MI5 investigated Christie after a character called Major Bletchley appeared in her 1941 thriller N or M, which is about a hunt for a pair of deadly, like, spy infiltrators mm-hmm. in wartime England. And MI5 was afraid that Christie had a spy in Britain's top secret code-breaking center, which was <laughs> Bletchley Park. They were like, why are you naming somebody yeah. in a spy novel mm-hmm. Bletchley so the agency's fears were allayed. They took her out for coffee, apparently. Like, they, they were like, hi, we're a friend of your friend Dilly's. Like, like come, come have coffee with us. We want to talk to you about your detective novels. And they were like, so mm, what, what's what with, inspired you? Yeah, what's inspiring Tell you? <laughs> and she said, um, I was, <laughs> they were like, what's with the Bletchley character? That's such a weird name. And they were like, she said, I was actually stuck there on my way by train from Oxford to London and took revenge by giving the name to one of my least lovable characters. So she just was stuck there on a train and was like, ugh, I hate this place. I can't, I'm sick of looking at this house. I'm calling the worst guy Bletchley. So they were like, whew. And they were like, you know, all is well. Carry on. Carry on. And all the people with guns aimed at her <laughs> yeah, secretly in the down. coffee shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... That was her brush with death, presumably. Um, In honor of her many literary work, she was appointed commander of the Order of the British Empire, or CBE, in in the 1956 New Year's Honors. And the next year, she became the president of the Detection Club. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Um, The Detection Club was a group of, like, novelists who like got together and would have coffee and talk about writing and also like talk about the like true crime that was going on in the country at the time, which is really cool. That sounds fun. Yeah. Like Dorothy Sayers was in it and um, there's somebody else. I'll have to look it up. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Um, in the 1971 New Year's honor, she was promoted to Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire or DBE. Uh, three years after her husband had been knighted for his archaeological work in 1968. And they were one of the few married couples who where both partners were honored in their own right 
And from 1968, owing to her husband's knighthood, Christie could also be styled as Lady Malowin, which she was sometimes done. So from 1971 to 1974, Christie's health began to fail, although she continued to write. Um, Recently, using experimental tools of textual analysis, Canadian researchers have suggested that Christie may have begun to suffer from Alzheimer's disease or other dementia. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1946, Christie said of herself, and this is just a description of her as a person, Mm -hmm. my chief dislikes are crowds, loud noises, gramophones, and cinemas. I dislike the taste of alcohol and do not like smoking. I do like sun, sea, flowers, traveling, strange foods, sports, concerts, theaters, pianos, and doing embroidery. The Agatha Christie Trust for Children commenced in 1969, and shortly after Christie's death, a charitable memorial fund was set up to help two causes that she favored— old people, and young children. (laughs) Christie's obituary in the Times notes that, quote, Dame Agatha's private pleasures were gardening, she won local prizes for horticulture, and buying furniture for her various houses. She was a shy person. She disliked public appearances, but she was friendly and sharp-witted to meet. By inclination as well as breeding, she belonged to the English upper middle class. She wrote about and for people like herself. This was an essential part of her charm. Christie died peacefully on January 12, 1976, at age 85, from natural causes at her home, Winterbrook House, in Oxfordshire. The simple funeral service was attended by about 20 newspaper and TV reporters, some having traveled from as far away as South America. She was survived by her second husband, Sir Max Mallowan, by her only child, Rosalind Hicks, and by her only grandchild, Matthew T. Pritchard. Malouan, who were married in 1977, died in 1978 at age 74, and he was interred next to Christie. So, let's talk about her books. Please. So, her reputation rests on 66 detective novels and 14 short story collections that have sold over 2 billion copies. Wow. An amount surpassed only by the Bible and the works of William Shakespeare. <laughs> her works contain several regular characters with whom the public became familiar, including Hercule Poirot, Miss Marple, Tommy and Thomas Tuppence Beresford, Parker Pine, and Harley Quinn. And I'll talk about all those characters in a second. She also wrote six romantic novels under the pseudonym Mary Westmacott. Mm. A total of 165 stories have been written and published in 15 collections in the U.S. and U.K. One of Christie's plays, which is called The Mouse Trap, opened in West End Theater in 1952. And as of this month, December 2019, as of this recording, is still running. Yeah. And in 2009, the London run exceeded 25,000 performances. And they've done such a good job of keeping the plot and the story like under wraps. Yeah, too. secret. Mm-hmm. Like they asked the audience to like, please don't spoil this for anybody. Yeah. So yeah, when we were in London, I wanted to go see it so bad. But like the one date that it was that mm-hmm. it lined up with us was already sold out. Uh, that's too bad. That would have been cool. Well, I mean, as far as you can tell, it's just going to keep going. Yeah. So you can next, next time. time you're out there, you'll go see it. So let's talk about the Poirot novels. The Belgian, not French, detective is one of Christie's most famous and long-running characters, appearing in 33 novels, one play, which is called Black Coffee, and more than 50 short stories published between 1920 and 1975. Poirot's first appeared in The Mysterious Affair at Styles, as mentioned before, and exited in Curtain, which was published in 1975. Curtain is the book where he dies. Spoiler alert, he dies. Um... And she actually wrote it in the 1940s, but refused to let it be published until after her okay. death. Yeah. So following the latter curtain, uh, Poirot was the only fictional character to receive an obituary on the front page of the New York Times. I love it. 
Um, his sidekick in many of the novels was a dim-witted war vet named Captain Arthur Hastings, who serves as the narrator in a lot of the books. Uh, I think it's like eight novels he's okay. in there and provides an appropriately astonished reaction when needed. Um, he described Poirot thusly, quote, he was hardly more than five feet, four inches, but carried himself with great dignity. His head was exactly the shape of an egg, and he always perched it a little to one side. His mustache was very stiff and military. Even if everything on his face was covered, the tips of his mustache and the pink tipped nose would be visible. The neatness of his attire was almost incredible. I believe a speck of dust would have caused him more pain than a bullet wound. Uh, he loves creme de cassis, much to everyone's chagrin, because whenever people go over to his house, he always offers them creme de cassis because he doesn't have anything else in his bar. And people are like, no, it's fine. I'll have tea. Um, and he keeps himself and his home neatly organized and clean. He has a weak estomac. Uh, he is always uh, very concerned about what he's eating because his estomac is very, uh, gets upset very easily. Sensitive. Yes, very sensitive. He also frequently acts more foreign than he actually is and pretends that his English isn't great, usually to lull murderers and other nefarious characters into a false sense of security. Um, In The Mysterious Affair at Styles, Poirot operates a fairly conventional clue-based and logical detective reflected in his vocabulary by two common phrases, which is his use of the little gray cells and order and method. Hastings is irritated by the fact that Poirot sometimes conceals important details of his plans, and Hastings is often kept in the dark throughout the climax. Um, This aspect of Poirot is less evident in the later novels, partially because there's rarely a narrator to mislead. Um, As mentioned before, he is a former member of the Belgian police and finds himself in London as a refugee of World War I. Um, He has no family, his past is very foggy, and he has never had a love interest in the novels, and all of that is left to Hastings. Like, Hastings falls in love with every girl, every beautiful girl in the 1920s. It's like crazy. Um, His counterpart in the Scotland Yard, who frequently calls him in for tough cases, is Chief Inspector James Harold Jap. Jap is outgoing, loud, and sometimes inconsiderate by nature, and his relationship with the refined Belgian is one of the stranger aspects of Poirot's world. His secretary is Miss Felicity Lemon, who has few human weaknesses. Poirot describes her as being, quote, unbelievably ugly and incredibly efficient. I know. Anything that she, is, that she mentioned as worth consideration usually was worth consideration. She is an expert on nearly everything and plans to create the perfect filing system. A woman after my own heart. <laughs> uh, Poirot's pale and sometime collaborator, detective novelist Ariadne Oliver, is Agatha Christie's humorous self-caricature in the novels. Like Christie, she is not overly fond of the detective whom she is most famous for creating. In Ariadne's case, Finnish sleuth Sven Hearson. We never learn anything about her husband, but we do know that she hates alcohol in public appearances and has a great fondness for apples until she is put off them by the events of Halloween Party, where a teenage girl is drowned in a bucket of um, apple bobbing, like they're apple bobbing. Yeah. Bobbing for apples, I should say. She also has a habit of constantly changing her hairstyle and in every appearance by her much is made of her clothes and hats. She has authored more than 56 novels and greatly dislikes people modifying her characters. She first met Poirot in the story Cards on the Table and has bothered him ever since. (laughs) Uh, By 1930, Agatha Christie found Poirot insufferable. And by 1960, she felt that he was a, quote, detestable, bombastic, tiresome, egocentric little creep. Yet the public loved him and Christie refused to kill him off, claiming that it was her duty to produce what the public liked. Mm -hmm. Poirot has been portrayed on radio, in film, and on television by various actors, including Austin Trevor, John Moffat, Albert Finney, Peter Ustinov, Ian Holm, Tony Randall, what? Alfred Molina, who? (laughs) Orson Welles, David Suchet, Kenneth Branagh, and John Malkovich. A lot. Uh, The best one by far 
is David Suchet from the BBC series of uh, Poirot, which okay. the theme music for that show is going to be the thinking music for the quiz today. Just FYI. Okay, Miss Marple. Jane Marple is an elderly spinster who lives in the village of St. Mary Mead and acts as an amateur consulting detective. She is my favorite of the two big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, she is featured in 18 novels and three short story collections, as well as several individual short stories. And the character of Miss Marple is based on friends of Christie's step-grandmother, Aunt um, Margaret Miller. Christie attributed the inspiration for the character of Miss Marple to a number of sources, stating that Miss Marple was the, quote, sort of old lady who would have been rather like some of my step-grandmother's Ealing cronies, old ladies whom I have met in so many villages where I've gone to stay as a girl. Her first appearance in a full-length novel was The Murder at the Vicarage in 1930, and her last appearance was in Sleeping Murder in 1976. Much like Curtin, she wrote Sleeping Murder where Miss Marple finally dies in the 40s and would not let it be published until after she had died. The other thing about Miss Marple was she had the idea of creating like an old lady detective character Mm -hmm. because in one of her Poirot books, there was a character much like Miss Marple, this older lady who was like, like very shrewd and could pick out things and was very smart and in the movie version um the director had changed that character to that of a younger woman um, and christy did not like that sure and was like you know what i'm gonna give the spinsters a voice like i'm gonna give the little old ladies a voice and so she created miss marple um so the character of jane marple in the first miss marple book the murder at the vicarage is markedly different from how she appears in later books mm-hmm. the early version of miss marple is a gleeful gossip and not an especially nice woman uh, the citizens of St. Mary Mead like her, but are often tired by her nosy nature and how she seems to expect the worst in everyone. In later books, she becomes a more modern and kinder person. She solves different difficult crimes because of her shrewd intelligence, and St. Mary Mead, over her lifetime, has given her seemingly infinite examples of the negative side of human nature. Crimes always remind her of a parallel incident, although acquaintances may be bored by analogies that often lead her to a deeper realization about the true nature of a crime. She also has a remarkable ability to latch onto a casual comment and connect it to the case at hand. In several stories... Say that again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Say what? The, no, exactly how you just said it. Say that again. Um, she, uh, in several stories, she is able to rely on her acquaintance with Sir Henry Clithering, a retired commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, for official information when required. So she's got a guy on the inside. Okay. Uh, Miss Marple never married and has no close living relatives. Her nephew, the, quote, well-known author, Raymond West, appears in some stories, which also feature his wife, Joyce Lempierre. Uh, Raymond also often overestimates himself and underestimates his aunt's mental acuity, even though she consistently proves how smart and capable she is. Uh, Miss Marple employs young women uh, from a nearby orphanage whom she trains for service as general housemaids after the retirement of her longtime maid housekeeper, Faithful Florence. She was briefly looked after by her irritating companion, Miss Knight, and in her later years, companion Cherry Baker, first introduced in the mirror cracked from side to side, lives in. Miss Marple has never worked for a living and is of independent means, although she benefits in her old age from the financial support of her nephew. She is not herself from the aristocracy or landed gentry, but is quite at home among them and would probably have been happy to describe herself as genteel or a gentle woman. Uh, Miss Marple may thus be considered a female version of the staple of British detective fiction, the gentleman detective. Mm-hmm. Uh, she demonstrates a remarkably thorough education, including some art courses that involve study of human anatomy through the study of human cadavers. And in They Do It With Mirrors, which came out in 1952, it is revealed that Miss Marple grew up in a cathedral close and that she studied at an Italian finishing school. Yeah. My, my. I know. 
Um, also, she seems to never age and is always sharp and healthy. Although, much like Poirot, sometimes she takes advantage of people's assumptions about her and She's pretends, old. yeah, pretends to be more confused or weaker than she actually is. Uh, from 1984 to 1992, the BBC adapted all of the original Miss Marple novels as a series titled Miss Marple, and Joan Hickson played the lead role. She's kind of a hard-faced woman. She seemed to play her a little bit like like snappy and sarcastic. Okay. Um, in the 1940s, she had appeared on stage in an Agatha Christie play, Appointment with Death, which was seen by Christie, who wrote her, a note to her, quote, I hope one day you will play my dear Miss Marple. Oh, how about that? And beginning in 2004, ITV broadcast a series of adaptations of Agatha Christie's books under the title Agatha Christie's Marple, usually referred to just as Marple. And Geraldine McEwen starred in the first three series, and Julia McKenzie took over the role in the fourth series. So Geraldine McEwen is, uh, she is now no longer with us, but she's like a tiny, like, wrinkled little lady. She had like a little apple head doll face, and she kind of played Marple as like a little fluffy and... Um, like a little brainless and like sweet uh, while Julia McKenzie was a little bit more like gregarious and um, like motherly almost. So it was interesting to see how these two act, like these three separate actresses took this character Mm -hmm. that was kind of wrote and kind of made it their own, which is kind of fun. Um, Both beautiful old ladies. Um, From 2004 to 2005, Japanese TV network NHK produced a 39 episode anime series titled Agatha Christie's Great Detectives Poirot and Marple, which features both Miss Marple and Hugh Poirot. Episodes adapted both short stories and novels. Is it like manga style? Yeah. Is it like <laughs> Dragon Ball Z? I know, with like, like the, the eye drip and like the, the ah! when their eyes get big and their mouth gets big and their nose disappears. I hope so. I should look it up. <laughs> um, Tommy and Tuppence. I've never heard of them. Yeah, you haven't because there's like five novels, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Tommy and Tuppence are two fictional detectives recurring characters in the work of Agatha Christie. Their full names are Thomas Beresford and his wife Prudence. Um, Her nickname is Tuppence. Uh, The first time Tommy and Tuppence appeared in a Christie novel was in The Secret Adversary, which came out in 1922. They started out their career in search of adventure and money, and the detecting life soon proved profitable and very exciting. Tuppence appears as a charismatic, impulsive, intuitive person, while Tommy is less imaginative and less likely to, to be diverted from the truth. As their first adversary sums him up, quote, he is not clever, but it is hard to blind his eyes from the facts, uh, which is why they are shown to make a good team. Um, it is in the first book, The Secret Adversary, that they meet up after the war and come to realize that, although they have been friends for most of their lives, they have now fallen in love with each other. Uh, unlike many other recurring detective characters, including the better known the better known ones, Tommy and Tuppence age in time with the real world. Okay. So the novels begin in their early twenties in the secret adversary and they are in their seventies in posture of fate, which was the last novel in, oh, wow. in the 1970s. Yeah. In the early appearances, they are portrayed as typical young people of the 1920s and the stories and settings have a more pronounced period specific flavor than the stories featuring the better known Christie characters. It's very twenties. They have a, a twenties pattern. Like she's always wearing like cloche hats and they're always going dancing, you know, like it's, it's very twenties. Um, as they age, they are revealed to have raised three children, twins, Deborah and Derek and adopted daughter, Betty. Uh, throughout the series, they employ a man named Albert, who first appears as a lift boy who helps them in The Secret Adversary. And in Partners in Crime, Albert becomes their hapless assistant at a private detective agency, and subsequently as a now-married pub owner, renders vitals assistance to the pair in N or M. By posture of fate, he is their butler and has now been widowed. 
In Posture to Fate, they also have a small dog named Hannibal, just FYI. Uh, they appear in four novels and one short story collection. Okay. Mr. Parker Pine, P-Y-N-E. He is a detective who appears in Agatha Christie's anthology, Parker Pine Investigates, and the short stories Problems at Palenza Bay and the Regatta Mystery. There are no novels featuring Mr. Parker Pine. He appears in a total of 14 short stories. And his quote and sales pitch is always, are you happy? If not, consult Mr. Parker Pine, 17 Richmond Street. Most don't notice the ad, some chuckle and read on. And just a few make their way to Mr. Parker Pine's modest office and meet the world's most unusual, baffling, and intriguing detective. He sounds like a grown-up Encyclopedia Brown. Yeah, it's a little Encyclopedia Brownie. Um, He's an uncommon type of detective who doesn't usually investigate murders or similar crimes, uh, but rather prefers to help his clients to re-encounter happiness. This is kind of like the mix of like her romance novels and her detective novels to a certain extent. Uh, For such, he applies the knowledge he has acquired in 35 years of work in the statistics office, from which he retired, establishing later on his own on 17 Richmond Street. Um, He has a theory that there are five main types of unhappiness and all are logically solvable. His methods are unorthodox and he often employs deception and constructs elaborate charades to fool the suspects and cure unhappiness successfully. Though he is apparently limited to a specific type of investigation, Pine also has uncommon capabilities for criminal investigation. He works alongside his neurotic assistant, Miss Felicity Lemon. Uh, Wait a second. Yep. Novelist Ariadne Oliver. Uh, handsome lounge lizard Claude Luttrell and disguise artist Madeline de Sara. Uh, whatever the case is, he always has an aid of his team, outnumbered but as effective as they are extravagant. Clearly, Pine and Poirot occupy the same fictional universe, even though they have never actually met. And finally, character Harley Quinn. He is uh, the most mysterious of all of her detectives. Uh, his name is a wordplay on Harlequin, which also might be a clue to his personality. Hmm. Mr. Quinn helps his older friend, Mr. Satterthwaite, solve crimes using his extraordinary skills and instincts. He appears in 12 short stories, appearing in The Mysterious Mr. Quinn, first published in 1930, and in an additional two short stories, The Love Detectives and The Harlequin Tea Set from Problem at Palenza Bay and other stories. Mr. Quinn's emissary, Mr. Satterthwaite, who appears together with him in all the previously mentioned short stories, also appears without him in Christie's short story, Dead Man's Mirror, and in her novel, Three Act Tragedy. In her autobiography, Agatha Christie wrote that Mr. Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite, whom she called Quinn's emissary, became her favorite characters. And the reason why was because she didn't exploit them as much. She refused to make a series of books about them, writing only when she felt like it. So she kind of, she enjoyed writing about them. Yeah. Here is how she described the protagonist, quote, Mr. Quinn was a figure who just entered into a story, a catalyst, no more. His mere presence affected human beings. There would be some little fact, some apparently irrelevant phrase to point him out for what he was. A man shown in a harlequin colored light that fell on him through a glass window, a sudden appearance or disappearance. It was always like, I I do really like the Parker Pine stories and the Harley Quinn stories because they do have like more of the Harley Quinn stories have a little bit of like that mysterious like otherworldly quality without it being like too magical realism-y um but the funny thing is is that mr harley quinn no matter what at some point in the story he like steps into the light of a stained glass window and it caused a curious pattern on his beautiful gray suit like it's you know it's kind of silly but um they're interesting and they're worth looking into um and like you mentioned her most famous novel is and then there were none which is considered like one of the greatest detective yeah. mystery novels originally ever. called 10 little indians uh originally called 10 little n words well, yeah yeah as given the <laughs> well yeah 
the, the slightly sanitized <laughs> version, I guess. Um, I actually went down a Wikipedia hole on yeah. that. Uh, but um, yeah, in America and Canada, it was always known as, and then there were none. Uh-huh. So there was that. Uh, but yeah, that was my uh, that was my little little diatribe on one of my favorite Beautiful. authors, Agatha Christie. And of the books you mentioned, I feel like four of them had mirror in the title. Mm. Yeah, um, she took a lot of her novel titles from songs, from uh, literature, like a lot of poems, mm-hmm. um, and a lot from, uh, like, The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side, I think is a reference to Shakespeare. Like, she had ah. a couple from Shakespeare mm-hmm. plays. But yeah, Mirror, a lot. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Uh, my favorite, I think, title of hers is called Mrs. McGinty's Dead, with an exclamation point. And that's a Miss Marple book. She also had the occasional novel where it was just like a one-off person, like a one-off detective or a one-off like, you know, brother-in-law of the guy who died who like decides to figure out how to, you know, solve the crime. But nine times out of 10, it was somebody that, you know, was one of her reoccurring characters. So my quiz today, I was originally going to do a quiz on detectives, but that got super boring. Um, so my quiz today is called Mon Dieu, a quiz on Belgium and facial hair. I'll describe the hairstyle and you name it. Question number one. Mon Dieu, mean got, mein got. What are the three official languages of Belgium? Question number two. This facial hairstyle is grown below the lower lip, but does not extend past the chin. Sometimes it's grown into a spike. Ew. And Howie Mandel is probably the most famous person still hanging on to this style. What is it? Question number three. Belgium is world known for their comic strips, and sometimes they even make their way across the pond. What famous children's television show and comic originated in Belgium and features creatures that use their own names as nouns, verbs, adjectives, etc.? Question number four. This facial hair is grown full and long over the jaw and chin, meeting with the sideburns but lacking a mustache. It is most often associated with the Amish, but has nothing to do with the national park in Virginia. Question number five. Some of the world's most famous painters are Belgian, including Van Eyck, Rubens, Delvaux, and this surrealist artist who was good pals with Dali and didn't want you to think that this smoking implement was actually a smoking implement. Question number six. This style of mustache is often seen as old-fashioned and peculiar, described as narrow, straight, and thin, as in drawn on, closely clipped, outlining the upper lip with a wide-shaven gap between the nose and the mustache. Popular in the 1940s and worn by Clark Gable, it's also known to have been worn by Vincent Price, John Waters, Little Richard, Sean Penn, and Chris Cornell. Question number seven. Hi, diddly-ho, neighborino. This Dutch-speaking northern portion of Belgium and one of the communities, regions, and language areas of the country is best known for its gourmandic Dutch culture and a specific style of painting. What region am I talking about? Question number eight. This style of facial hair, which doesn't include any hair on the face, but rather exists entirely below it, is often derided, and the term is used as a pejorative for men who are socially inept, smug, long-winded, and unappealing. Question number nine. This city in Belgium, known as the second city, is best known for being the diamond capital of the world. It has been a major focus of the diamond trade since the 15th century, and today 84% of the world's rough diamonds pass through it to be polished and shaped before hitting the stores. What city am I talking about? And finally, question number 10. I'm going to name a bunch of famous dudes that all wore the same type of facial hair, and you tell me the name of the facial hair. 
number one, worn by Adolf Hitler, Charlie Chaplin, Oliver Hardy, and Michael Jordan in his commercials for Hanes. Number two, worn by Hulk Hogan and Bill Kelleher of the band Mastodon, recently repopularized by Gardner Minshew of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Number three, worn by Presidents Chester A. Arthur and Martin Van Buren and fictional Canadian Wolverine. And finally, number four, worn by Mark Twain, Theodore Roosevelt, John Orr Bolton, Wilford Brimley, Frederick Nietzsche, and Jamie Heineman of Mythbusters. We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers. This word, are you putting on an accent for Mustache? me? Yeah. Um, I, Every time you say it, <laughs> like something in my brain like <laughs> is like getting touched by a pin. <laughs> are you saying you don't like it? The way I say mustache? <laughs> She's actually flinching away from me. All right, I'll just say mustache. Jeez. Yeah, I was trying to like put, it. I was trying that's to put more a little. Like it. I mean, I think like the first like couple times you said it, I was like... And I was like, no, is that how she says that word? <laughs> you know, I was trying to put a little class in this podcast, but apparently it's not its not appreciated. All right. Here we go. Uh, mon Dieu. Mein Gott. Mein Gott. What are the three official languages of Belgium? French. Yes. German. Yep. Uh, and uh, Dutch. Yes. Uh, none of them are Belgian. Just yes. FYI. That's not a language. <laughs> Uh, question number two. This facial hairstyle is grown below the lower lip, but does not extend past the chin. Sometimes it's grown into a spike. Ew. And Howie Mandel is probably the most famous person still hanging onto this style. What is it? Is it just a goatee? It's a little bit smaller than a goatee. Hmm. Oh, a soul patch? It is a soul patch. Uh, the stereotypical image of a 1960s beatnik often includes a soul patch, just as a point of reference. Question number three. Belgium is world known for their comic strips, and sometimes they even make their way across the pond. What famous children's television show and comic originated in Belgium and features creatures that use their own names as nouns, verbs, adjectives, etc.? The Smurfs. The Smurfs. In Dutch, they're called De Smoofen. Uh, The Smurfs were first created and introduced as a series of comic characters by the Belgian comics artist Peyo, which is the pen name of Pierre Culliford, in 1958, wherein they were known as Les Strumpfs. The word smurf is the original Dutch translation of the French strumpf, which according to Peyo is a word he invented during a meal with fellow cartoonist Andre Frankin when he could not remember the word salt. 
What's the word salt in like, French, Julia? Test the strumpf. Sell. Oh, well, that's dumb. It doesn't sound anything like it. Uh, the Smurfs franchise began as a comic and expanded into advertising films, TV series, ice capades, video games, theme parks, and dolls. I don't get it, but I'm not Belgian. Question number four. This facial hair has grown full and long over the jaw and chin, meeting with the sideburns, but lacking a mustache. It is most often associated with the Amish, but has nothing to do with the National Park in Virginia. Hmm. National Park in Virginia. What is the National Park? One of what's a national no, park in there's Virginia? A lot, there's a lot. Well, you got a lot of battlefields in Virginia. Sure. I guess I would just have always called that an Amish beard. Yes, it's also known as an Amish beard. Um. Hmm. All right, you got, you got. Antietam. No. Nope, that's in Maryland. You got uh, Manassas. No. <laughs> you got Shenandoah. It's a Shenandoah. It's called a Shenandoah. I've never heard of that. Neither have I. That's why I put the National Park thing. Wow. Um, also known as an Amish beard, Chin Curtain, Donegal, Lincoln, Spade Beard, or Whaler. Uh, depending on the style, there are subtle differences in the shape, size, and general manageability by each style. Um, this style for the Amish is rooted in a rejection of the German military fashion of sporting mustaches, which was prevalent at the time of the Amish community's formation in Switzerland, hence serving as a symbol of their commitment to pacifism. And now I can't remember how to say the word mustache. <laughs> mustache. It's much more calming when you say it in your buffalo accent. I know, right? Mustache. Mustache. So used to my long A's. <laughs> Go Bills. Um, question number five. <laughs> That's the only thing. That and beef on wick. Give me a beef on wick. The bills are on. Um, <laughs> question number five. Chicken wings. Um, number five. Some of the world's most famous painters are Belgian, including Van Eyck, Rubens, Delvaux, and this surrealist artist who was good pails with Dolly and didn't want you to think that this smoking ele- implement was actually a smoking implement. That is René Magritte. It is René Magritte. FYI, the painting of the pipe with uh, Ceci n'est pas un pip. Its official title is The Treachery of Images or The Wind and the Song. Although it's acceptable to just call it This Is Not a Pipe. The Magritte Museum, which Steve and I went to when we were in Belgium, uh, opened to the public on May 30th, 2009 in Brussels and housed in the five-level neoclassical Hotel Altenloe on the Place Royale. It displays some 200 original Magritte paintings, drawings, and sculptures. This multidisciplinary permanent installation is the biggest Magritte archive anywhere, and most of the work is directly from the collection of the artist's widow, Georgette Magritte, and from uh, Irene Amour Scoutenaire, who was his primary collector. Additionally, the museum includes Magritte's experiments with photography from 1920 and on the short surrealist films he made from 1956 on. A street in Brussels has been named uh, Ceci n'est pas une rue. This is not a street. Question Question number six. This style of mustache is often seen as old-fashioned and peculiar, described as narrow, straight, and thin as if drawn on or closely clipped, outlining the upper lip with a wide-shaven gap between the nose and the nose. And the mustache. Popular in the 1940s and worn by Clark Gable, it's also known to have been worn by Vincent Price, John Waters, Little Richard, Sean Penn, and Chris Cornell. Is it called a pencil mustache? It is called a pencil mustache. It's also known as a mouth brow. 
like that. I hate that. I don't like it. I don't like it either. It has been recognized as the mustache of choice for the fictional character Gomez Adams in the 1990 (laughs) series, The Adams Family. Question number seven. Hi, diddly ho, neighborino. This Dutch-speaking northern portion of Belgium and one of the communities, regions, and language areas of the country is best known for its gourmandic Dutch culture and specific style of painting. What region am I talking about? Great clue. Uh, Flanders. Flanders. And in fact, I'm actually going to talk about Ned Flanders because it's more interesting. He is voiced by Harry Shearer, who reportedly made his voice so sweet and silly that the character was broadened. Uh, in 2001 and 2002, the Greenbelt Festival, a British Christian music and arts festival, held a special Ned Flanders night. The 2001 event featured a lookalike contest as well as the tribute band Ned Zeppelin. It was held in a 500-seat venue that was filled to capacity and an extra 1,500 people were turned away at the door. A second event was held in 2002 with Ned Zeppelin reappearing. Another tri- another tribute band, which is called Oakley Dokley, Plays heavy metal music or nettle, heavy nettle music. I You don't even like The Simpsons. I don't even like The Simpsons, but I was so charmed by this. I also went down a Simpsons Wikipedia hole, which is why it took me so long to get this topic. (laughs) (laughs) Question number eight. This style of facial hair, which doesn't include any hair on the face, but rather exists entirely below it, is often derided and the term used as a pejorative for men who are socially inept, smug, long-winded, and unappealing neck beard it is a neck beard popular in the 19th century wares include jefferson davis richard wagner and henry david thoreau the original neck beard question number nine this city in belgium known as the second city is best known for being the diamond capital of the world it has been a major focus of the diamond trade since the 15th century and today 84 percent of the world's rough diamonds pass through it to be polished and shaped before hitting the stores what city am i talking about Antwerp? It is Antwerp. Um, I already talked about diamonds in our episode number 31, Diamonds Are Forever. It's very good. Instead, I'll tell you a cool fact. Belgium currently holds the world record for longest period without a government. 541 days. Hmm. That's how long it took Belgian politicians to form an official government after the federal elections of June 13th, 2010. Whoa. Okay. And finally... Question number 10. I'm going to name a bunch of famous dudes that all wore the same type of facial hair, and you tell me the name of that, the facial hair. Number one, worn by Adolf Hitler, Charlie Chaplin, Oliver Hardy, and Michael Jordan in his commercials for Hanes. I didn't know it had any other name other than Hitler mustache, (laughs) so I'm just going to call it a postage stamp. Uh, You're very close. It's called a toothbrush mustache. Number two, worn by Hulk Hogan and Bill Kelleher of the band Mastodon, recently repopularized by Gardner Minshew of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Does it connect or does it, is it just around the mouth? It's just, I was, I will say it's a mustache. Yeah. Okay. Is it a Fu Manchu? No, it's called a handlebar mustache. Hand, okay. Yeah. A Fu Manchu goes like, like comes all the way uh, off okay. the face. Yeah. Uh, number three, worn by Presidents Chester A. Arthur and Martin Van Buren and fictional Canadian Wolverine. Those are mutton chops. Those are mutton chops. And finally, number four, worn by Mark Twain, Theodore Roosevelt, John R. Bolton, Wilford Brimley, Frederick Nietzsche, and Jamie Heineman of Mythbusters. Myth I mean, Busters. that's just like a man's man mustache. <laughs> that's just is a it called a walrus? Man. It is called a walrus. Good job. That's just a man's mustache. It's just like... <laughs> Yeah, that's a man right there. <laughs> you look at that. You look at that like thatch of hair below like, his nose. Whoa, and you go, whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa. <laughs> guy's got a lot of testosterone, if you know what I'm saying. 
It's uh, it's 2020. We have the debut of a new segment. Today. We are so excited. Now, we came up with this in the middle of another episode yeah. that we were recording. Yeah. So we received just just the nicest email. The nicest email. Probably we've ever gotten. Ever. So the rest of you will have to step up your game. Uh, we got an email from Germ. Germ. And it was just probably the nicest email we've ever gotten. And um, so Germ has given us a, a really long list of trivia about the state of Hawaii. Because he lives in Hawaii. He lives in Hawaii. Loved our Hawaii episode. I mean, did he say that? I don't yes, know. I'm did. just assuming that he did. <laughs> I mean, he he gave us very specific and very kind compliments, <laughs> yes. and the email was beautifully written. And how could you not love somebody whose name is Germ? I know. So because we got so much good trivia from Germ, we're gonna parse it out to you guys like one line at a time. So 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 this is kind of a, a subset of listener submitted trivia, mm-hmm. but we're calling this Germ's Corner. <laughs> Germ, you get your own corner, man. So so today's tidbit from Germ is the oldest high school west of the Mississippi is in Hawaii. It's called Lahaina Luna, and it is on Maui. That's great to know. You know what? Thank you for that, Germ. Thanks, Germ. And that was Germ's Corner. Uh, we're very excited about that. Um, also, guys, we, uh, as you've noticed, we, I mentioned this at the top that we have a new logo. We're hoping to get some merch out about that. If you guys are interested in that, hopefully, uh, we're going to be making t-shirts and um, we were talking about maybe some other stuff. Maybe some other stuff. We're talking about tote bags. Everybody loves a tote bag. Yeah. And then um, we're also uh, in chats to figure out like, we'll do like the logo and then maybe, maybe some other things, maybe some other other stuff. So uh, stay tuned for that. We will be posting that on our social meds. Yeah. And it's 2020. So uh, we hope to see you for geek bowl 2020. Geek Bowl's coming up in just a couple of months. In the windy city. Yeah. The windiest of cities. We already have our, our team name. Uh, and we're just, we're very excited. We're excited to see our, our trivia brothers, our, our trivia brothers and our other trivia friends and our other trivia friends. Yeah. So if you are a trivia friend, come out and see us. Yeah. So there will be more, more news forthcoming about yeah. any events or, you know, special things that will be going on during Geek Bowl week. But we are going to be extremely busy. Mark your calendars. Yeah. If you gonna- haven't picked your flights yet, you should be there before Thursday night. Yeah. And make sure you get a hotel close to the, to the event because, um, if I remember correctly, we we flew through Chicago last year, and uh-huh. it was 13 degrees in Chicago yeah, the same weekend. That tracks. Yeah. I mean, that's nothing to to us here. No, in almost but Canada. Everybody's but coming from different areas, yeah. and you know, be prepared when you got that thin blood from the south. You get cold very easily. I'm just saying. So, uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed our topic on Agatha Christie, and uh, you know, find us wherever you get your podcasts please rate review and subscribe tell a friend and uh we will catch you next time (laughs) Bye. bye